RPC Radio. Before we jump into today's episode, we wanted to give our listeners a quick content warning. We will be discussing sexual harassment in a work context, including how that might arise, which some listeners might find triggering. With that in mind, we'd advise listener discretion as to whether you feel comfortable listening to this episode. Hi, and welcome to the Work Couch podcast, your fortnightly deep dive into all things employment. Brought to you by the award-winning employment team at law firm RPC, we discuss the whole spectrum of employment law, with the emphasis firmly on people. Coming up in this episode, in the first part of our podcast mini-series on sexual harassment in a post-MeToo era, we're going global and we're going to take a look at the differences and commonalities between the UK and Australian legal regimes on sexual harassment in the workplace. My name is Ellie Gelder. I'm a senior editor in the Employment Equality and Engagement team here at RPC, and I'll be your host as we explore the constantly evolving and consistently challenging world of employment law and all the curveballs that it brings to businesses today. We hope by the end of the podcast, you'll feel better prepared to respond to these people challenges in a practical, commercial and inclusive way. Today, we're exploring the law on sexual harassment in a post-MeToo era. It's just over five years since the hashtag MeToo went viral, but it's actually 16 years since the MeToo movement, which was originally established to provide support to survivors of sexual violence, was first founded in the US by Tarana Burke. Unfortunately, despite the far-reaching impact of the Me Too movement and increasing demand for change, sexual harassment remains a serious issue in the workplace today. According to research undertaken by the Scottish TUC in 2022, 45% of women have experienced sexual harassment at work, while a third of women have experienced sexual harassment at work within the last year and a staggering 85% of women said that their report and experience was not taken seriously or dealt with appropriately. So, as this is a global issue, underpinned by various cultural and socio-economic factors, we thought we'd take a look at the law on sexual harassment in another part of the world. In fact, the other side of the world, specifically Australia, to see how legal protection in the UK measures up in comparison. How is Australia legislating to ensure that there is adequate protection at work from sexual harassment? And how does that compare to what the UK law provides in terms of legal redress and employer obligations? RPC is very proud to be a member of Terralex, an invitation-only network of top law firms around the world that connect with each other so their clients can benefit from a truly global service. One Terralex firm that RPC works closely with is Australian firm Lander & Rogers, and I'm delighted to be joined on the work couch today by Aaron Goonry, partner at Lander and & Rogers, and our very own employment partner and ESG lead, Kelly Thompson. Hi both, thank you for joining me today on the work couch. It's quarter past eight UK time for Kelly and I, and I think quarter past seven or thereabouts for you, Aaron. That's right. Hi, Ellie. Oh, yeah, I haven't had a coffee yet, and I'm assuming Aaron's had about 15 by this point, if he's anything like me. Thank you so much for joining me today at opposite ends of the day. Um, Aaron, can I just start by asking you, what is the legal definition of sexual harassment in Australian employment law? 
Uh, yeah, uh, it's, I assume, very similar to the UK. The Sex Discrimination Act and the Fair Work Act, which are the two principal pieces of legislation in relation to both sexual harassment in the workplace and also in, in regards to the Fair Work Act, which regulates many employment terms and conditions, they define sexual harassment as when a person makes an unwelcome sexual advance, an unwelcome request for sexual favours, or engages in other unwelcome conduct of a sexual nature in relation to a person. This occurs in circumstances where it is possible that the person harassed would be offended, humiliated or intimidated. Okay, so Kelly, how does that compare to the definition here in the UK? Um, That's the one contained in the Equality Act 2010. Yeah, it's actually very similar, as Aaron said. There are some kind of subtle differences, but but the way it's defined in the Equality Act, in it's Section 26, if you're that way inclined, um, it's where a person engages in unwanted conduct of a sexual nature, so very similar to the Australian position, I think. Um, and that conduct has either the purpose or the effect, so that or the effect is quite important because it doesn't require an intention to harass. But it's Yeah, is it similar in Australia, Aaron? Yeah, the... You don't regard intent. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's either the purpose or the effect of um, violating another person's dignity or creating an intimidating, hostile, degrading, humiliating or an offensive environment for that person. So very very similar. The other bit that the Equality Act provides for in terms of a sort of extended definition, I suppose, around sexual harassment is where somebody rejects or submits to harassment and then is treated less favorably as a result of that so essentially you know if somebody was kind of moved departments or dismissed or anything like that as a result of having rejected advances or um submitted to advances uh, that that's sort of specifically if i can put my teeth in uh, called out as well so interesting that both focus on the effect on the alleged victim rather than any intent by the alleged harasser and sexual harassment isn't always going to be at the workplace, even if it is related to work. So it could be at a work party or it could be online. And we saw online sexual harassment hit an all-time high during lockdown uh, here in the UK, which arose out of the increase in working from home. So Kelly, tell us a bit about the, the online perspective. Yeah, um, and I think it's it's that point about the pandemic sort of exacerbating or, or kind of emphasising the fact that the workplace more and more extends beyond bricks and mortar walls and even even for those who work in a sort of traditional kind of office role the ways in which employers use social media messaging apps you know networking sites emails etc they're all very relevant to this issue and and to the legal risk as well as the sort of personal risk the Fawcett society in the uk in at the end of 2021 published a report that was around tackling sexual harassment in the workplace and they found that it was about 45% of women that they'd surveyed, they'd only looked at women's experience. 45% had experienced harassment online through sexual messages, cyber harassment, sexual calls. And almost a quarter of those who'd been sexually harassed said that that had increased or escalated since the start of the pandemic while they were working from home. So it's its its own epidemic within an epidemic, if I can put it like that. But I'd be really interested. You, you mentioned Ellie around the sort of parties piece of the jigsaw. And I'd be really interested in Aaron's experience on that, because certainly for me, the vast majority of cases I've seen from a sexual harassment perspective have involved alcohol and some sort of social event. Yeah, Aaron, tell us about how you come across it in your line of work defending these kinds of claims. Are they often cropping up in terms of 
like Kelly said, work parties where alcohol is involved. We, we have a similar issue in Australia in terms of the workplace is beyond the bricks and mortar. Uh, it's beyond the, the four walls of an office or an office environment. And we, we've had it for some time where, and, and there are a number of cases about it, and invariably it does involve alcohol. And I'm sure you're the same, Kelly, but please correct me if I'm wrong. One of our busiest times of year is the festive season. Yeah. Yep. Like Christmas parties and in Australia, because that's our summer and, and pretty much party season here in Australia. Yeah. Um, it, it's gotten earlier as well in terms of when companies are having these events and it tends to start in around November where companies are having them. And invariably, we are finding that there are a lot of complaints at those events and particularly during the pandemic because we had a, a number of lockdowns and then things would be lifted and then you'd have another lockdown and then things would be lifted. And I think that created a bit of a melting pot in terms of aberrant behaviour with people who in many cases forgot about the respect that one should show to others in the workplace because they had been locked down and then they had invariably conducted themselves in an inappropriate way at, at a party. Yeah, so almost like a perfect storm for sexual harassment to take place. Aaron, what would you say to those who might say that harassment protection has actually gone too far um, and the fact is actually good old banter at work just isn't allowed anymore? How do you advise clients to respond to that point of view that invariably must come up? It does depend on what the banter is. It's such an interesting subject because... To me, banter may be amusing, and to someone else, it may be something completely different, particularly when you're talking in a sexual harassment way about innuendo yeah, or inappropriate jokes. And in terms of that amusement factor, where you have a group of people, and there are these cases that I'm aware of in the UK, where you have cases where people argue it as a defense, and you know, it's just banter. In Australia, particularly when the banter is of a sexual nature or sexist in nature, it is probably considered unforgivable, particularly given the the reforms that we've had in this country in relation to sexual harassment and misconduct. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll, we'll talk about that in a moment, the legal developments that have taken place in Australia Kelly, I'd also be interested to hear your views on this one, as I know the team is often called on to roll out anti-harassment training to a range of clients. And we do sometimes hear people ask, don't we, but what can I say at work? Because I'm worried about saying anything slightly jokey now. Yeah, um, I'd say a few things to that. I'd echo what, what Aaron said about, you know, the whole point of this really is kind of understanding that your perception of the world isn't necessarily everybody's and bringing that to your interactions with people. I think the first thing I would say, and it's a sort of techie point, but I'd say that the law, certainly in the UK, has a break built into it. So we talked a little bit about it not needing to be intentional harassment to be unlawful, but where it's a situation where harassment wasn't intended, offence wasn't intended, but it had that effect, then the law expressly sort of builds in this check and balance, really, to say, well, look, was it reasonable to have that effect? So the law does not sort of stop you saying anything. That's a kind of misconception, if I can put it like that. But I think I'd also make a couple of broader points. One is this isn't a question of I can't do this now versus I could do this then. It was never okay to harass somebody. 
period. Yeah. The fact it might have been more tolerated for years, that's not a good thing. I, I think of it as more like some sort of dystopian past than a kind of golden era that we should try to return to. Um, and even from just a purely legal perspective, the law we're talking about in the UK has been in place for a long time. So it was always our obligation. This is just about understanding yeah. our obligation. Um, but actually, to be fair, when people ask that question, I don't I don't think they tend to be sort of wistfully reminiscing about the times when they could, you know, harass without impunity. I think it more <laughs> I think it more comes from a place of being sort of worried about being cancelled. And I do think there's something in that as you know, I say this as I would Aaron and I, I think would both regard ourselves as DEI practitioners and as I won't yeah. cast blame to him, but I certainly take take some on behalf of of that as a discipline because i think we've built a lot of this stuff and we've not necessarily brought people with us on the quote-unquote journey of kind of understanding this stuff so if you're a white middle-aged middle-class cis straight able-bodied man in a company yeah you're more likely to be very senior but you're probably um less likely to have had any meaningful involvement in developing the company sort of dei strategy um and i think that means you kind of feel can feel left behind and like you don't know what your role is in it but I would also say that's not an excuse to disengage. You know, we've all got individual responsibilities to create inclusive environments. Um, and to Aaron's point, to recognise that our experience and perception of the world is just that. It's not everyone's and try and kind of understand and close that empathy gap. Absolutely. Yeah. Empathy is key in the whole DEI B piece, isn't it? Yeah. So, Aaron, let's dive into the law now. Um your team recently wrote a brilliant article on the substantial changes to the law on sexual harassment in Australia, specifically the Anti-Discrimination and Human Rights Legislation Amendment Respect at Work Act 2022. I understand it's sort of referred to now as the Respect at Work Act. So I understand it implements a number of recommendations in the Respect at Work report that was released following the National Inquiry into Sexual Harassment in Australian Workplaces. And I think the use of that word respect is so interesting as it really goes back to the the effect that someone's behavior can have on someone else yeah i agree i agree the, the the report itself came out at the same time that the pandemic hit so had the pandemic not arrived at the time that it did i think it would have gotten a lot more fanfare um, it's just regrettable that it was 2020 that the report was released because it was groundbreaking in the sense that it was a world-first inquiry in relation to workplaces that were investigated. It was an inquiry that was led by the Sex Discrimination Commissioner, Kate Jenkins, and it really was quite profound in terms of its findings. And off that report came certain reforms and most recently we've had significant changes with the Respect at Work Act which has introduced a number of different things and it's dawning I think on a lot of other people around the world that this is a world first in terms of what we're introducing and the way that we are looking at sexual harassment because sexual harassment I think previously was looked upon as being something that fell within the discrimination realm. And now in Australia, it's being looked at from a work health and safety perspective as putting a different optic in relation to how we look at sexual harassment. And it's fascinating to see 
employers and employees engage on it from a work health and safety perspective as opposed to looking at it from a unlawful discrimination perspective because everyone has the right to go to the workplace in a safe and healthy way. And the the, the other thing which I say to people, I, I, I actually find it remarkable as well, it's the first time that um, the law has actually specifically prohibited sexual harassment in the workplace. Prior to that, it was considered unlawful, but now it is actually prohibited by law. So that's a massive shift and really interesting how it's being approached as a health and safety matter. And I guess it's changing that, that the view that employers have on it and perhaps that pushes it up the agenda now. As opposed to if it yeah. belongs in the anti-discrimination realm. It, well, in Australia, the health and safety agenda item is very much at the top when you're delivering board papers, when they talk about work okay. health and safety, um, because there is director and officer liability associated with work safety breaches. So where you're talking about personal liability, it tends to make its way up the top in terms of a board agenda item. Um, now you talk about it in relation to sexual harassment, it, it has to be a number one or at least up there as a top one, two or three agenda item for boards to consider. Yeah, that's very different from the UK, isn't it, Kelly? Yeah. yeah. Just to say, we'll include a link on our podcast page to Aaron's team's resources because you've got lots of detail on the Act's many provisions. One area I'd just like to pick up on is the fact that the Respect at Work Act imposes an obligation on employers to eliminate sexual harassment in respect to quite a broad category of workers. So does that mean they have to prevent sexual harassment by third parties like customers or suppliers? Yes. You would have to take, because the, the standard now is where you're in control of a workplace then you are responsible for the work health and safety at that workplace. And that is in many jurisdictions within Australia. Work health and safety is not a, necessarily a national law. Each of the states and territories has their own laws about this, but it is mostly uniform with the exception of a couple of jurisdictions. And in that regard, when you talk about work health and safety, you talk about an employer, we refer to it as a person conducting a business or undertaking. So it's a very broad definition. It's not just an employer. It's whoever's in charge of that particular site or workplace, right. whatever it is, they're responsible for the work health and safety of anyone who goes on that site. So, and, and we've spoken about this before, Kelly and Ellie, in terms of the customer who goes into a shop and may abuse the shop attendant, the employer or the person conducting a business or undertaking, as we call them in Australia, under work health and safety legislation, would be responsible for the employee who has copped that abuse. And that therefore means that when you look at sexual harassment, the employer, using inverted commas on that, would be responsible for a third party coming in and acting in an inappropriate and sexually harassing way. And Kelly, in July 2021, the UK government 
also announced its intention to introduce a new duty on employers to prevent sexual harassment in the workplace. And that included explicit protection against third party harassment in the workplace. And the UK government since given its backing to a private member's bill to bring that new duty into effect by actually changing the existing law, the Equality Act 2010. So we're not at the same stage as Australia yet. But despite our governments having very different political stances, there are changes afoot here in the UK as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been a very long time coming. It was back in 2018 that the UK government committed to consulting on A, a mandatory duty to prevent harassment and B, on sort of strengthening protection against third party harassment, as you mentioned. Um, I should also say we used to have legislation dealing with third party harassment, but it was repealed. Um, so we're kind of trying to get back to where we were before, which sounds like the title of a song, but but anyway. <laughs> um, so the government then did run that consultation, which closed in 2019. It wasn't reported on until 2020. I think something happened in the interim, but I can't quite remember. Um, so it was back in 2021 that we have this commitment to introducing these duties, quote, as soon as parliamentary time allows, unquote. Um, so what we've got right now is a private member's bill, but it is backed by the government and by opposition as well. And essentially it would create new liabilities for employers because the employer would be at law treated as having harassed their employee if the employee is in the course of their employment harassed by a third party. So exactly the examples you, you were just talking about, customers and clients. There'd be a sort of get out of jail card for the employer, I guess, if they'd taken all reasonable steps to prevent that third party harassment, so, sort of shifting the burden on stopping it happening in the first place onto the employer. So similarities with what you were describing, Aaron. Yeah, we, we have the same thing, Kelly. In, the get, yeah. In okay. terms of preventing, the, the, system's been, the, the old system has been described as being reactive. And to that extent, in Australia, if you took reasonable steps to prevent the sexual harassment from occurring, that would be a defence. Yeah. And now you have to not only take preventative steps, but you have to be proactive in preventing sexual harassment from occurring in respect of any possibility that it may come in with a customer or a client or a supplier or the delivery person who's dropping things off. There's no error or there shouldn't be any error in terms of how an employer approaches it. They have to fill out all those gaps, as it were. That's interesting because that's the other bit of the private members bill in the UK is both this kind of liability for third party harassment unless you've taken all reasonable steps and then the flip of it as you just described a corresponding duty to take all reasonable steps to prevent sexual harassment and then the proposal is that that corresponding duty to take all reasonable steps will be enforced by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission here so it's sort of be an enforcement piece rather than a compensation piece albeit Uh, the suggestion is that tribunals could uplift, sort of increase any compensation an employee who brought a sexual harassment claim was awarded. It's uh, it's a sort of penalise, I suppose, for not discharging that overarching duty as well. So lots of similarities, I think, if it goes through in its current form anyway. And Aaron, we know there's a real issue, which I mentioned at the start, of of victims of workplace sexual harassment not speaking up. Um, And the TUC here in the UK has reported that four out of five employees don't report harassment to their employer because of a fear of reprisal and further victimisation. So I wondered how is that sort of idea of psychological safety, feeling like you can speak up, how is that moving up 
the DNI agenda in Australia. We now are seeing, again, because of the way the jurisdictions work in Australia, we are seeing that states are adopting uh, psychosocial safety regimes where they are, are saying, in essence, employers must do certain things to ensure the psychosocial safety of employees. And so that's gone pretty much hand in hand now with the respective work reforms that we've seen in terms of employers being required to do more to ensure the psychosocial safety of employees and others who fall within the boundaries of their control, given we have this broad definition of a person conducting a business or undertaking. And so we are seeing a lot more in that space. And I think it comes out of a number of things, not to harp on about the pandemic, but I think that that has assisted in regulators going, in fact, we need to do more to ensure the mental well-being of people. And we see a very large group of people making compensation claims based on mental health injuries that they have incurred in the workplace, as opposed to, you know, the traditional physical injuries that people expect in usual workers' compensation matters. There is a lot more going on in the mental wellness and mental health injury space as we see now in Australia. And Kelly, a key ingredient to having that speak-up culture at work is that concept of active allyship and and calling out that inappropriate or that offensive behaviour. And it actually reminds me of a time at the beginning of my career at a client meeting when the client made an inappropriate remark about me in front of me to my supervisor. Some could have described it as laddish banter, but it, it was humiliating and offensive. And I'll never forget my supervisor at the time, he called out that remark there and then, told the client not to speak to me that way and demanded an apology, which the client did, by the way. So way before we used that term allyship, the same concept applied, and it goes back to your point about, you know, harassment's never been okay. Um, And it was just a powerful signal to me as a junior employee that that kind of behaviour isn't okay, even if it is by a client. So my supervisor's actions could have gone either way. Luckily for me, he chose not to be a bystander. Yeah, I'm so sorry that happened. That sounds grim, Ellie. But Gold Star to your supervisor for what what in the lingo you might call an upstander rather than a, a bystander. I, I totally agree with you. I think active allyship's a really powerful tool in sort of creating and sustaining inclusive cultures. I think what we could do a lot better in many of our organisations is educate people about what that actually means in practice. I don't even care what name we call it. Like you said, he doesn't your supervisor wouldn't have heard of the word allyship, I'm sure. No. He was being a good person, right? Standing up for someone else, even when, especially when actually you're not personally affected. Yeah. Um, and if you are, you know, interested in the, the sort of reading around it, there's lots of literature about different kinds of allyship and it doesn't, it's not always being loud, extroverted, sort of standing in the way of the, the oncoming bullet sort of thing. Um, you may feel feel able to do that to intervene in the moment like your supervisor did and that's incredibly powerful but you can be an ally without doing that if that's not who you are or the position you've got in your organization or you feel uncomfortable there's lots of different ways including being a kind of confidant and a supporter a sort of 
helping people kind of process and deal with things that have happened or issues that are concerning them and those next steps that's equally active allyship as the sort of in the moment responses absolutely and just to quote research by the tuc again seven in ten lgbtq plus workers and disabled women workers have experienced at least one form of sexual harassment at work and nearly a third of young workers have experienced sexual harassment often from third parties so businesses really need to just take into account those intersectional challenges yeah that's hugely important i think the research is really clear that the more marginalized identities the more inequity you are likely to experience the more barriers you're likely to experience Um, There's a really good article I was reading in Harvard Business Review about race and seniority. So just to pull out some examples that I thought were very kind of stark, black men are far more likely to have been sexually harassed by a colleague than men of other ethnicities. Um, This was in in the States, by the way, this research. Among the Asian women that they surveyed who said they'd been harassed, nearly a third said that the perpetrator was actually a junior colleague, not somebody senior, which is the kind of prototypical scenario yeah. certainly I've experienced in, in practice in, ter- in terms of claims and things. So I suppose the message is if you're looking to eradicate this and you're looking to discharge that obligation that you, you have or might be about to have if you're in the UK as an employer, you need to understand the specifics of the problem you're solving for in your organisation, not base it on sort of assumptions or generalisations about who who's at risk of being harassed and who's at risk of being a harasser. So we've heard that there are similar patterns in how workplace sexual harassment arises in Australia and the UK and and the legal protections, while at very different stages in terms of implementation, they ultimately derive from those same objectives. So to ensure workers feel safe and they feel they're treated with respect at work. Aaron, can we just finish with your key takeaways for dealing with allegations of sexual harassment? So in my view, employers should critically assess what steps they need to take within their organisation to prevent and prohibit sexual harassment. And this isn't advice that I necessarily just give to Australian employers. This is the advice that I would give to any employer who operates anywhere, um, regardless of the, the country or the culture that you're operating in. Employers, we want to be known as being not just employers of choice, but ethical and good employers, particularly when we're looking at the war for talent. I, I, I strongly um, recommend that companies look at providing avenues for that speak-up culture. Reviewing and updating policies, um, I can harp on about that all day long. Um, some employers take it on board, others don't. But they need to clearly say what the company's stance is. And in Australia, it's actually a requirement that they need to say that sexual harassment is prohibited and it is unlawful. Um, Reviewing and updating procedures, as I said before, in terms of speak up procedures to actually bring complaints to the fore so that the company can deal with them. Developing and targeting effective discrimination and harassment training rolling it out periodically, making sure that it's from the top down, not that it's from the bottom up, and ensuring that all staff and and anyone who comes into your workplace, whatever that workplace looks like, is aware that discrimination and harassment of any kind is prohibited and how people who do come into your workplace can raise issues in relation to complaints or grievances about discrimination or harassment. 
And Kelly, what would you like to add to those points that Aaron's mentioned? Yeah, I'll pick up on that point around dealing with allegations when they arise, if that's okay, Ellie. And I think the first thing I would say is always take it seriously. Investigate it thoroughly and sensitively. This is perhaps one of the most emotive of human experiences. Um, and you've got to be really mindful of that and let that understanding drive the process. I do genuinely think it's really important to take legal advice early on to ensure you manage the process properly and discharge your obligations to all of the different people involved. You need lawyers, ideally, who understand the kind of human element. I've definitely seen investigations and these sorts of issues go horribly wrong where lawyers have, for example, taken a really adversarial approach from the outset. The other thing I would say sort of at the end of that process is how important it is to kind of learn the lessons and implement the changes, you know, don't put the report in a drawer without kind of testing going, is there a cultural thing at play here? I think if you if you say you've got a zero tolerance to harassment, that means zero, like even the people who make the most money for the business, even the people who are the most senior, even the figureheads. So if you're not going to apply it to those people, don't say it. Because I always think kind of culture is made as much as anything in those difficult decisions where you're weighing perhaps the commerciality piece as to what this person really makes my business yeah. versus all, all of these issues. And I think you've got to engage with that when you make those decisions. Thank you so much, both of you, Aaron and Kelly. That was a fascinating whistle-stop tour of the law on sexual harassment in Australia and the UK. And I think it gives us all hope that by strengthening those laws and protecting workers, really meaningful progress can be made in, in stamping out those toxic workplace cultures where harassment features um, and going back to what Kelly and Aaron were saying about the intricacies of dealing with those allegations, do look out for the second part to this podcast series when we'll be joined by our wonderful employment associate, Michaela Joyce, explaining the practicalities of dealing with allegations of sexual harassment. RPC Radio. Radio. If you'd like to revisit anything we discussed today, you can access transcripts of every episode of the WorkHatch podcast by going to our website, www.rpc.co.uk slash theworkhatch. Or if you have questions for me or any of our speakers or perhaps suggestions of topics you'd like us to cover on a future episode, please get in touch by emailing us at theworkhatch at rpc.co.uk. We'd really love to hear from you. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we'd be really grateful if you could spare a moment to rate, review and subscribe. And please spread the word by telling a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and we hope you'll join us again in two weeks.